Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right, if you'd all open your Bibles, please, to the book of Numbers. Numbers. So if you go to the front of your Bible, you find Genesis, you'll go to Exodus. After Exodus is Leviticus. And then you'll find Numbers, and we will begin reading in chapter 13, verse 25. Numbers 13, 25. Um, thanks to T.J. Dudley for leading music today in Paul's absence. And <clears throat> congratulations to the winners of Golden Goose Awards last night. We had a good time here in the sanctuary watching videos made by uh, our junior and senior high youth um, so I'm told that they are online, so you can see them if you weren't here last night. If you go to New Life's Facebook page, um, it should be pretty apparent where to go from there. And you can see the videos that we enjoyed last night. So good work, youth, on your videos. Thanks to the events team also for all the work that you did in getting things ready for last night. Have you ever felt like God has led you into the wilderness? Uh, I've told this story many times, but Mary and I had that experience after I got out of seminary, and um, we were hoping to find a call to a church, and no call was forthcoming, and we spent about two years after I graduated uh, looking for a church, and we were kind of in and out of employment, spent some time unemployed, and when I tell that story, and again, many of you have heard me tell it, but whenever I do, I always say that that was our wilderness period. It felt like a wilderness to us, and maybe you know what it's like to be in the wilderness. You feel lost. You feel like there's no direction. You feel forgotten, and you feel like God is absent. And you might be in the wilderness right now. Or maybe you have a memory of a time where you have been in the wilderness. There are various ways this can happen. Um, maybe you're um, about to graduate or you have graduated and you're not really sure where God is calling you or what to do after graduation. Or maybe you are in between jobs. You don't have a job. You're hoping to find one. And um, you don't know when you're going to find employment again. And it feels like you're, you're in the wilderness. Or maybe you're you're in a dead-end job. The job that you have is one that doesn't provide any real reward or fulfillment for you, and, and you just feel directionless, and you feel like you're in the wilderness. Or maybe you're single, and you've been single for a long time, and you hope to be married, and you don't see any prospects, and you feel like you're in the wilderness. Or maybe you're dealing with a persistent illness that won't go away. Maybe you have <coughs> recently lost a spouse and now you're in the wilderness. Well, we are going through a sermon series called Route 66 here at New Life, and what we're attempting to do is go through the entire Bible, one sermon per Bible book. So I'm covering each book of the Bible, starting in Genesis, and God willing, we're gonna go all the way through the book of Revelation, and here we are at the book of Numbers, and as we get to Numbers, we find that God's people, Israel, is in the wilderness. And in fact, that's the way the book begins. If you just look at chapter one, verse one, it says, God called out to Moses in the wilderness 
of Sinai. Now, wilderness can have a literal meaning. Of course, it could be an actual place, and that's what it means here in uh, Numbers 1.1. Israel was in a place of wilderness or, or desert, but the wilderness can also have a symbolic meaning. It can uh, mean something a, a little bigger or deeper or more spiritual. The wilderness in the Bible often represents barrenness, darkness, lifelessness, chaos, and even the absence of God. And the most challenging thing about being in the wilderness is that when we get there, our faith is challenged, perhaps like in no other situation. We are challenged in the wilderness to either respond to it in belief or unbelief. And that's what we're going to see the people of Israel wrestling with as they wander through the wilderness here in the book of Numbers. So uh, just some quick background information about the book of Numbers. Um, the author, again, Moses, I don't know, this slide is not advancing for some reason. Can we get the next slide? Thank you. Yes, okay, so the author Moses, we believe Moses has written the um, Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, written probably between 1446 and 1406 B.C., before the time of Jesus, so 1446 is, we think, the Exodus, 1406, when Moses died, sometime in between those times. Significant events in the book of Numbers include two census censuses, I don't know if that's the plural of census or not, but two censuses taken, uh, we've got Korah's rebellion where the ground opens up and swallows Korah and his family, Moses in the rock, water coming from the rock, Balak and Balaam and the talking donkey, uh, cities of refuge <coughs> uh, near the end of the book. And the theme, as I've been kind of pointing out to you here, is uh, wilderness. Uh, and also, along with that, an attitude of grumbling and complaining and unbelief, which we see the Israelites possessing throughout this book. So at the point where we're about to read here in chapter 13, verse 25, this is Israel um, on their way to the promised land, and they are right on the edge of the land. They're about to enter the land, and 12 men or 12 spies are sent up into the promised land to do some reconnaissance, basically, to just check out the area before Israel is about to enter the land. And these 12 spies come back and they're giving a report to Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel. And so that's where we pick up the story, chapter 13, verse 25. So if you please stand for the reading of God's word. This is kind of in the middle of a long narrative, so we're, ta we're taking kind of a chunk out of the middle of it. I'm going to read 13.25 through 14.12. It says this, <clears throat> at the end of 40 days, they, that's the spies, returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, 
and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there, were, uh, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, or so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? There's that emphasis on unbelief. How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. God, would you please open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to behold wonderful truths in your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so th th this is the contrast we see in this passage. There are responses of unbelief and responses of belief. And the same thing applies to you and me. And it certainly was my case in the wilderness. And that is that in the wilderness, very often what happens is our hearts are revealed in a very vivid and um, acute way, and that's what we see here. So the first thing I want to show you is um, the wilderness uh, might reveal a heart of unbelief in, in your life. So before we get into this, I, I want to show you what I'm talking about when we talk about this kind of movement toward um, the promised land. This is uh, a map of Israel's journeys or wanderings through um, the wilderness. Up here we have a place called Goshen. That's the area of Egypt where 
Israel was enslaved, and you remember when we looked at the book of Exodus, we found that God graciously freed and liberated Israel from that place. And so Israel began on this journey, and they came down here. This, of course, is modern-day Saudi Arabia, and most of this area is considered the wilderness. Uh, Down here at the bottom, we have Mount Sinai. And so um, in the book of Exodus, we see Israel encamping around Mount Sinai. That's when Moses went up onto the mountain, received the law from God, and the people encamped close by Mount Sinai. And so uh, you might remember the tabernacle. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The tabernacle was set up there close to Mount Sinai, and that's when the whole sacrificial system was set up. And we learned about that in the book of Leviticus, which we looked at um, two weeks ago. And so since then, the people have set out, and now they're traveling uh, northward here, and you'll see the wilderness of Paran, and that's what is mentioned in verse 26 of chapter 13. That's where the Israelites are uh, in the passage that we're looking at right now. The promised land is up here. It's a little bit off the map, but the promised land is what will eventually be uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, the land of Canaan, the promised land, uh, Israel, all kind of roughly the same thing. And um, uh, the spies were sent up to check out the promised land, and then they returned to give this report. And that would have been about a 500-mile, 450, 500-mile round trip. And so we see here in verse 25, I think, that... um, Uh, It took them about 40 days. You have verse 25, about 40 days to make this trip. And so they come back, and we see in verse 32 that um, the spies are giving a bad report. They give a bad report. And so it's this kind of negativity that now has this very destructive effect. And we get to see what is in the hearts of these Israelites as they're in the wilderness and they hear this bad report. And so we see Israel's unbelief coming out in at least three ways, okay? So the first thing is this. We see clearly that Israel forgets God's promises, okay? Look at verse 27, okay? Verse 25, they're gone 40 days. Verse 26, in the wilderness of Paran. And verse 27, we came to the land to which you sent us, and look what it says, it flows with milk and honey. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because that's exactly what God promised they would find when they went to the promised land. Exodus 3, verse 8, this is going to be a place that I'm giving you that's filled with milk and honey. The people go and they see that it is filled with milk and honey, and you would think that would be a great encouragement to their faith, you know, that they would say, hey, this is just like God said, just like he promised. Wow, this is wonderful. You'd think that would boost their confidence, but that's not what happens, because in verse 28, you see how they go on. However, very important word, (laughs) however, uh, except, yeah, the land was filled with milk and honey, but... I mean, that's a very big but right here. But, and they go on to describe what they have seen here. The people there, they're they're very big and they're very strong. The cities there, they're very fortified and very large, verse 28. And 
Uh, in fact, we saw all of these different people groups here, verse 29. Amalekites are there, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites. All these different people groups are there. And so, yeah, it was just like God promised, but there's all of these intimidating circumstances. And so, I don't think we can do it. Now, here's one reason why that is so um, revealing verse 29 the list of all these people because actually back in Genesis chapter 15 here is what God promised he said to your offspring he's talking to Abraham here I give this land the land of the Kenites the Kenizzites the Cadmonites Hittites Perizzites Rephaim Amorites Canaanites the Girgashites and the Jebusites what God is promising there is, look, Israel, I'm going to give you this land, and, and these people are going to be removed, and you will be able to enter the land and take it, because this is the land I am giving you. And yet here the spies know just about half of the people groups that God promised in Genesis 15. They just know half of them, but just that small number in verse 29 is enough to discourage them. What they did is they forgot what God had promised they didn't have God prom God's promises in, in mind. And, and here's the principle, is when you rely more on your personal observations about what's going on in your life, rather than on God's divine revelation, the result will always be fear. It'll always be paralysis. It'll always be discouragement. God had revealed clearly certain promises that were even beginning to unfold in their lives as they saw this land of milk and honey, just like God promised, but they forgot. So that's one reason for their unbelief. Second reason, they feared their circumstances. They feared their circumstances. Caleb says in verse 30, we can do it. Verse 31, the men say, say no, we can't. <laughs> Very strong contrast there. Why? Why are they saying that they can? It's not just that they forgot God's promises, but it's because of all these things that they note in, in the land. Um, everything that we've noted already, the big people, the strong cities, uh, the many people. But then also, if you go down to verse 32, that they give some more detail here. It's, um, it's because this land devours its inhabitants. Um, even though it's a land filled with milk and honey, they're also seeing it as a land that devours its inhabitants. I think we're supposed to see a little bit of exaggeration here, that, that maybe it's not quite as bad as what they're making it out to be. This is a land that eats its people, they're saying. And um, we saw the Nephilim there. Now the Nephilim are mentioned back in Genesis chapter 6, and we don't really learn a whole lot more about them, but they're known to be kind of people of, of giant size, and so whether they were actually there or not, I, I guess we don't know. It could be that they were thinking they seem like Nephilim, and in comparison to them, we feel like grasshoppers. And that's just a way of kind of saying, like, we feel like little shrimp, you know? In, in our language, we might use the word shrimp to describe the feeling of being very small. Well, the word grasshopper captured that, and that's how the Israelites felt. It's almost like they were saying, there are monsters there and they will eat us. And that's why we don't want to go. They looked at the circumstances and those circumstances just grew in enormity and overcame them with fear. And so a question that comes out of this, friends, as you look at your own circumstances, whatever it is you're facing in your life, 
Are your circumstances bigger than your God, or is your God bigger than your circumstances? Isn't there this tendency to make things seem so much worse than they really are? I mean, I I remember having the same kind of feeling when we were in the wilderness and I couldn't find a place, um, a church to call me, and so I was working in a grocery store uh, in a deli. And so I was, you know, preparing meat and slicing cheese, and and I remember just thinking, this is what I'm going to be doing the rest of my life. And I pictured myself with a walker, you know, there slicing the cheese and serving people in the deli and having to work beyond retirement because I'll never, ever, ever find another job besides this. That was the way my mind was working, exaggerating my circumstances, and that's what Israel seems to be doing here. But there's a third reason that Israel falls into unbelief is that they feel like God is against them. And so we see this as we go up into chapter 14, verse 3. Look what they say. There's this response of grumbling and complaining. And they say, they, they they say, I'm starting to think that what God is doing when he freed us from Egypt is that he actually only intended to bring us out here so that we could die in the wilderness. That we're going to fall by the sword. And not only did he want us to die, he wanted our wives to die, and he wanted our children to die, verse 3. And so they start to think, maybe it would be better if we just go back to Egypt. That's just totally doubting the goodness of God. They've been liberated from slavery. Do you remember in the beginning of the book of Exodus, it says that Israel was plagued with bitter, hard service, and the Egyptians ruthlessly worked them as slaves. And yet that's what they're thinking they want to go back to, because they're doubting the goodness of God, and they feel that God is against them. Now, don't you, though, feel the same way when you're in the wilderness? When you feel like God is not around and you don't know really where you're going in life and you just start thinking God is out to get you and you begin to interpret circumstances in your life as if they are designed to, 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 to bring you down, to discourage you. And again, I remember having <clears throat> that same experience. I mean, two years without really much steady employment and I remember thinking is this some kind of a cruel joke I mean why did God bring us to St. Louis to go to seminary if he had no further plan for us and I got to the point where I got desperate I sent a resume back to my old employer trying to get my old job back you know it was like I think I want to go back to Egypt because there's nothing for me out here. I was in the wilderness, and I was questioning the goodness of God. I felt like God was against me. And that, that wilderness, friends, I mean, that's what it does to you. It reveals your heart. When I think back on that, I mean, I'm just ashamed at what came out of my heart during that time. The wilderness, wilderness belief of the Israelites, the wilderness has shown my own unbelief. What does the wilderness show about your hearts? What is it showing about what's in your heart? Is it a heart of unbelief? Or is it a heart of belief? Because the wilderness can also reveal 
this. Uh, there are exceptions to what very often happens. You know, the spies came back, they gave the bad report, 10 spies giving the majority report, but there was a minority report as well. The minority report came from Caleb and Joshua. And we see this in chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. And they give this inspiring exhortation to the people about the land. They say to the congregation of the people of Israel, verse 7, they say this is a, this is a good land, it's exceedingly good. And they say in verse 8 that um, God is going to give it to us. He's going to give us this land. And they say in verse 9, don't, don't fear these people. Don't fear the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Nephilim. Because look at verse 9, they are like bread for us and their protection is removed. Basically what they're saying is the land isn't going to devour us. We're going to devour them. We're going to eat them like a loaf of bread is what Caleb and Joshua are saying. Now, this is not some kind of a prideful kind of trash-talking thing like you see in the NBA. Um, you know, these guys are not confident in their own abilities, and you can see that in verse 9 very clearly. Here's the whole reason for their confidence. The very end of verse 9, it's because the Lord is with us. God is going with us. Therefore, do not fear them. Caleb and Joshua, they were men of faith. They were in the wilderness too. They shared all the discouraging circumstances that the rest of the Israelites did, but they did not forget God's promises. They didn't exaggerate their circumstances, and they had the assurance that God was for them. And they were ready to move ahead. And friends, that should be even more so for us as Christians who live on this side of the cross. As we look and see what God has done in giving his son for us, we should be assured of his promises more than ever. We should be confident in the face of our circumstances, and we should have full assurance that God is for us, and yes, that he even delights in us. Now, what makes this so remarkable uh, this report, this minority report from Caleb and Joshua, is the fact that it's coming out of a climate that is so unbelievably negative. <laughs> so we have the majority report, and that majority report, the negative report, the bad report, it spreads like wildfire in the camp. And so you see the beginning of chapter 14. How do the people respond? They raise a loud cry. They're weeping through the night. They're grumbling. And they are so worked up in this kind of violent mob mentality because of all the negativity that they're hearing around them that after Caleb and Joshua give their little speech, they want to kill them. They want to stone them to death in verse 10. And we see something here about how destructive negativity can be. How easily it can take root in a community and discourage people and turn them against each other and even turn them into a violent mob. And yet in the midst of that climate and that atmosphere, here's Caleb and Joshua, and they are not swayed by this. They're not going along with everybody else. They're not persuaded by the majority view. They're in the small minority, and yet they maintain faith and belief and hope. That's a hard thing to do. Like G.K. Chesterton once said, 
A dead thing always goes with the stream. Only a living thing can swim against it. And Caleb and Joshua, in their living faith, they swam against the stream. And they held on to this confidence that God was with them and that God was for them. I mean, we see this in various ways, don't we? I mean, we live in in an exceedingly negative cultural climate right now, don't we? We see all the political arguing. We see all of the slander and all of the criticism and all of the arguments. And it's discouraging. There's so much negativity in our culture. And we hear about the church and its fading influence. And we hear that if the church doesn't do this or that, it's going to die and it's going to fade away. And it's just so easy to be overcome. And when people start talking negatively like that, something in our hearts just wants to grasp onto that and start sharing that attitude. And what we need in situations like that is someone like Caleb or Joshua to step forward and say, friends, Jesus is still on the throne. God is still in control. There is nothing unfolding in our history that's any different from the way God had always intended it. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that your God is with you and that your God is for you. Are you that person? Negativity is spreading. People are just talking down everything. Do do you speak faith into that situation? Do you speak belief into that situation? That's what Caleb did and that's what Joshua did. And there's something refreshing about that. I mean, we need to have a realistic assessment of the way things are, yes, but we are Christians. We are people of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we need to be people who encourage one another to do that. This happened again during our wilderness period. Back in St. Louis, we'd finished seminary, looking for a job, couldn't find anything. Finally, you dear people here at New Life uh, called us to come and serve as your pastor. And I remember there was an incident where we um, were trying to sell our house in St. Louis. We owned the house there in St. Louis while I was going to seminary. And we sold the house, but we didn't have a house in, in Muncie. And Mary and I and this realtor were talking about this, and the realtor was like being very negative. He was like, well, what are you going to do? I mean, you sold the house here, but you don't have a place to live in Muncie. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? And, and I remember my heart was kind of going like, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. And I was starting to kind of get worried. And then, and then Mary just, you know, stepped forward, looked the guy in the eye and said, listen, God has called us to Yorktown, and he is going to provide a house for us. And we have no doubt about that. (laughs) And so the next day, we came out to Muncie, and we found a house. And it's the house we live in today, 14 years later. And so in that case, the wilderness revealed faith in the heart of my wife, and I'm grateful for that. But again, I would ask you the question, what is the wilderness revealing about your heart? Unbelief or belief? Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, I'm not Mary. I don't have a faith like that, and I'm certainly not Caleb, and I'm certainly not Joshua. I don't have the faith like these 
people. In fact, I often forget God's promises. I often fear my circumstances. And I often feel that God is against me. And that's my life. So what about me? Well, here's the good news about the wilderness, friends. The the wilderness is symbolic of barrenness and, and, and darkness. That's true. But the wilderness in the scriptures is also a place where God shows up and rescues his people and speaks grace into an otherwise hopeless situation. And we see this most profoundly. Uh, if you want to skip ahead to verse, um, so chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, um, here's what's happening. Uh, the people are continuing to grumble. They're continuing to operate in unbelief. And God sends serpents. He sends snakes to bite them in his judgment And in the midst of this, the people cry out. And then God speaks to Moses, and he says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Get a serpent, put it on a pole, and lift up that pole high for all the people to see it. And anyone who will look at that pole and that serpent on the pole will live. He doesn't say, tell the people to do better. Tell the people to try harder. Tell them to believe more. He doesn't say that. He says, just hold this thing up, and whoever looks to it will not die. Now, here's what's phenomenal about this. Jesus picks this up later in John chapter 3. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, probably. God so loved the world. How many of you knew that the two verses before that refer to numbers? And here's what Jesus says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses was, uh, just as the serpent was lifted up, what Jesus is saying, so will the Son of Man, so will Jesus be lifted up out of the grave. After laying down his life and paying the penalty for sins, he is going to be lifted up in resurrected glory. And the promise is that any who look to him, the resurrected Savior, through faith, will have eternal life. Is that you? Is your heart one of belief when you hear that good promise? The promise is this, look to Jesus, place faith in him, and you will have the assurance, the full assurance that all of his promises are true, that there is no circumstance that can overwhelm you, and that, and that God himself is for you. God loves you. God delights in you. And that is a vision, a vision that you can take with you as you continue to walk through the wilderness fighting your unbelief and clinging to belief. As the guy said there in Mark 9, oh Lord, forgive my unbelief, help me to believe. And that's the cry that all of us need uh, as we walk through the wilderness. Let's pray and we'll get ready to sing, Be Thou Our Vision. Father, we thank you that your word is true. Your promises are true. We thank you that you transcend our circumstances and we thank you that you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.